You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. All of the scripture verses I'll be reading and referring to will also be projected on the PowerPoint, but I invite you to also follow along in your own copy of God's Word in 1 Timothy chapter 4 as we continue our series in 1 Timothy called Gospel Culture in God's Household. It was in May 2019 that the York Regional Police executed a massive search warrant in the town of Markham. For those who have never been down the 404, that is a town not too far from here. This was the culmination of a year-long investigation called Project Knock Off. The police always love to come up with creative project names for their investigations, and this one was called Project Knockoff, and it involved dozens of officers and resulted in the seizure of thousands of illegal items. But what is it that they were looking for? You might assume that in a project that size, they were looking for the usual suspects, drugs or weapons or an illegal gambling operation, but it was none of those things. Instead, the purpose of this investigation was to seize counterfeit goods from the internationally renowned and notorious establishment that many of us know as P-Mall or Pacific Mall. Have you been there? Pacific Mall. I see a lot of my Asian friends hanging their heads in shame. (laughs) Pacific Mall. You'll know that it's one of the best places to buy high-end items at low-end prices. The only problem is that what you're really getting often, not always, but often, is low-end items that look like high-end items at low-end prices. And that's the nature of counterfeit goods. They deceive you into thinking that they're something that they're not. They pretend to be luxury handbags and designer clothing when they're really just knockoffs. Hence, Project Knockoff. But you don't know that. You don't know that they're knockoffs because they look, feel, and smell like the real thing. So you buy them. And you think, oh man, I got a great deal. When behind the counter, the store owner is smiling and saying, I just got a great deal from you. Now, why did the police bother with something like this? Why would they turn their attention and resources to address the problem of counterfeit goods? Well, there's the economic reason, of course. Counterfeiting, you could say, is a form of theft. The real companies that design, produce, and market the real products are losing millions of dollars to the counterfeit industry. But the other reason is that counterfeit goods can be dangerous. They can be dangerous. And I'm not talking about fake Nike shirts or counterfeit Louis Vuitton handbags. I'm talking about fake household appliances, fake cosmetic products, fake baby products. They can be dangerous because they're not tested and often cheaper materials and chemicals are used in these products to to knock down the production cost. Counterfeit goods can be dangerous. The same is true when it comes to godliness. Godliness. In our last sermon in this series two weeks ago, we saw that godliness is the true mark of mature Christianity. A mature Christian is not one who, who 
exceeds others in passion or knowledge. The, the true mature Christian is the one who exceeds in godliness, in mature character. But now as we turn to chapter 4, we see that there's such a thing as counterfeit godliness. It looks like the real thing, feels like the real thing, smells like the real thing, but it's nothing but a fake imitation. Now, there are many different kinds of counterfeit godliness, and today we're only going to address one of them. It's the counterfeit godliness of legalism. Legalism. Legalism was the counterfeit godliness of the Pharisees, a class of religious zealots in the times of the early church. They were self-righteous, and they appeared to have great devotion to God when, in fact, they did not know God at all. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that Jesus had more criticism and correction for this class of people than any other groups. And so you might think that the early church would have gotten the lesson, that they would have heard the warnings and heard Jesus' criticism of the legalists, and they would have avoided legalism like the plague. But it became a massive problem in the early church. And it remains a massive problem in the church today. And until we learn to identify it and reject it, we are at risk of believing that we have real godliness when all we have is a knockoff. So let's read our verses today. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 to 5. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The title of this message is Counterfeit Godliness. And we're going to have three points today. First, the dangers of legalism. Second, the source of legalism. And third, the remedy for legalism. First, the dangers of legalism. Now, Paul begins verse 1 by pointing out that what he's about to say has been expressly stated by the Spirit. Now, we know, based on what the Bible teaches us, that everything that the Apostle wrote that that is contained in the Scriptures was inspired by the Spirit. He was carried along by the Spirit and wrote what the Spirit wanted him to write as an authoritative record of God's Word for all time. But there were times when Paul was especially aware, personally, that what he was writing originated from the Spirit himself. And this was one of those times. Verse 1 tells us something very important about the Spirit. It reminds us that, that the Spirit isn't just some mystical force that fills us. The Spirit is a person who speaks to us. When we pray for more of the Spirit, we're not just praying for, for divine power to clothe us. We're praying that the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit who speaks to us, would abide in us. And does he empower us? Yes, he does. He he fills us with himself to empower us to be faithful to God's calling. 
But he does much more than that. The Spirit guides us, he comforts us, he convicts us, he speaks to us because he is God himself. And this ordinarily happens that the Spirit speaks to us as we read the scriptures. God's Spirit speaks to God's people through God's word. But there are also times when the Spirit speaks to us in a way that is outside of the scriptures, but in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that's what happens when the New Testament gift of prophecy is used, or when you have a strong sense that the Spirit is leading you in a certain way. Now, in verse 1, we don't know if Paul is talking about the Spirit speaking directly to him or speaking to him through the mediated means of Scripture. In a sense, it doesn't really matter because the Spirit always speaks in accordance with the Scriptures. The point here that Paul wants us to take is that we can have absolute certainty regarding what he's about to say. The Spirit expressly states that this is about to happen. Well, what is it that the Spirit has said? He has said that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. The Spirit is speaking about what we know as apostasy. Apostasy. Apostasy occurs when a professing Christian turns away from the faith and can no longer be considered a believer. If you turn your mind back to pre-COVID times in 2019, apostasy was actually one of the main headlines in Christian news outlets when a handful of prominent Christian leaders did just this. They committed apostasy. And it sent shockwaves through the Christian community and made us wonder, how did this happen? Did we do something wrong? How did we ever put leaders like this in places of influence? Well, verse 1 reminds us that though we should be saddened by apostasy, we should never be surprised by it. Because the Spirit expressly states that some will depart from the faith. Apostasy is bound to happen. Some who are in the faith will no longer be in the faith. Some who once followed Jesus will follow him no longer. Some who started strong with zeal and commitment and sacrifice will fade away and leave their faith behind. Now we need to be careful here because we believe that the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. We believe that the Bible teaches that none who are truly saved, who are truly regenerated by the Spirit, will ever lose their salvation. Once you are born again, you are born again to eternal life, and nothing can take that away. Jesus spoke of that in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Our, our security is certain in Christ. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will, not may, not we hope he does, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 5, this description of believers. Christians are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. True Christians can enjoy the peace and the assurance and security of the perseverance of the saints because it is not our strength, it is not our willpower that sustains us. 
It is God's power that sustains our faith. God is faithful to his people. And that means that if he, if he started a good work in us, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. But none of that changes the fact that some who profess faith in Christ are not truly found in Christ. They're not in Christ. And on the last day, on the day of judgment, they will not be in Christ. Just listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. All these references from this one chapter in scripture. In Matthew 24, verse five, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now Jesus is implying, of course, that the elect cannot be led astray. But false teaching is so persuasive and so powerful that the elect would be led astray if God did not protect them. Apostasy is bound to happen. And if you have been walking with Christ for a few years, you likely know a few people who once said that they were Christians who are no longer. Or perhaps you know people who continue to say that they're Christians, but they have denied Christ by their beliefs or their actions. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about a different kind of apostasy. It's still apostasy, but these people haven't left the church. They haven't renounced Christ They're still calling themselves Christians. And there's no indication in our text today that they have renounced any fundamental tenet of our faith. Instead, their apostasy comes from their legalism. We see this in verse three, where Paul describes them as those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. This is is a picture of what legalism can look like. It's creating rules and restrictions that aren't in scripture and saying, this is what you need to do, or this is what you need to not do in order to become godly. It doesn't matter if the Bible doesn't teach that. Legalists create their own standard of godliness, their own path towards godliness, and enforce it towards everyone else. You can see why this is so dangerous. Legalism isn't just about imposing a few more rules on ourselves. It's about replacing God's authority with our own. It's us saying to God, I know what it takes. I know what I need to do to truly become godly. And I'm going to do these things. I'm going to teach others to do these things regardless of of what your word says. You could say that legalism is an act of rebellion. It's trusting ourselves rather than God. It's proudly declaring that we're going to create our own ways to make ourselves godly and reject God's ordained means of godliness. But you may wonder, why would anyone buy this? Who would ever listen to the legalists? I mean, who wants more rules in their lives? Well, people buy it because it looks like the real thing. It's a true counterfeit. It looks and feels and smells like the real thing, and so people are led astray. They think they're buying the the, the real thing, but they're really just getting a knockoff. It looks like the real thing because, after all, doesn't the Bible call some people to abstain from marriage and live a single life, to 
serve the Lord without distraction? Yes, it does. Doesn't it teach that there are times when we should fast? We should abstain from food? Well, yes, it does. I mean, wouldn't you be impressed if you met someone, if someone walked into our sanctuary and introduced themselves and said, you know, I fast three times a week. And I'm not married because I've devoted my life to serving God without distraction. Wouldn't wouldn't you be impressed? That takes a lot of sacrifice, doesn't it? That takes a person who takes spiritual things seriously. Well, there's nothing wrong with abstaining from marriage or food, provided that it's done for the right reason. In fact, there can be a lot to commend about it. But as soon as it becomes something you believe that everyone must do in order to become godly, you've become a legalist and you're in danger of departing from the faith. My friends, this is counterfeit godliness. And it's so dangerous because it's so subtle. It looks like the real thing, but it's fake. And one day it will be revealed as the forgery that it truly is. That's the danger of legalism. What is its source? Where where does legalism come from? This leads to our second point. At the root of it, you could say that legalism comes from the human instinct to justify ourselves. We tell ourselves that we have what it takes to to make ourselves better people, righteous people, people who who have earned God's favor. But of course, we, we can't do that. If you know anything about the doctrine of sin, you know that we're too broken for that. Our sin gets in the way of any attempt that we may have to grow in true godliness. Paul says in Romans 7, anytime I want to do good, evil is right there with me. One part of us knows that it's impossible, but we try anyways, because we desperately want to prove that we we have what it takes, and we can make it by our own strength. It's human pride that leads to legalism. Legalism also comes from a desire for self-exaltation. If we can make it on our own, then we can prove that we're better than others. You remember what Paul said about these false teachers back in chapter 1. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 7, Paul talked about these false teachers as those who were desiring to be teachers of the law. Okay, so they, they didn't want to be taught, they wanted to teach. And they wanted the status that came with it. And so they started claiming to have this, this secret knowledge, this This knowledge that Paul didn't have, the apostles didn't have, but they had. And they're saying, well, Paul's saying that the mystery of godliness is beholding more of Christ? Well, that's nonsense. We know the true path to godliness. Follow us in this path of denial and you'll grow far more mature. Now, in case we are tempted to think, well, this is just an innocent mistake. You know, this is just the lack of proper training We must understand who these people were. This was a deliberate attempt to gain a following so that they would increase in influence. Paul says about them in verse 2 that that this false teaching, abstaining from the good things that God has given us, is given to us through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now the word for insincerity there is the same word used to describe hypocrites. He's saying it's through the hypocrisy of these liars that this false teaching is coming to us. Now, hypocrites were originally, it wasn't a title that carried any moral weight. It was used to describe actors in the Roman theater. 
And that's why Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. They were actors. They were putting on masks to pretend that they were something that they weren't. They were fakes. And so were these false teachers. They were counterfeit teachers teaching a counterfeit godliness. They were just playing a role to present themselves as something that they weren't in order to manipulate people for their own selfish gain. Now, it is no different today. All you need to do is spend a little bit of time thinking about the prosperity gospel teachers. I mean, they have no one's best interests in mind but their own. And when you're really thinking about the logic of prosperity gospel teaching, that if you do this, then God's blessings will pour out on you. If, if you just give this amount of money, you'll become rich, and God's favor will fill your life. It's just another form of legalism. Do this and you'll become a more godly Christian when, that, when that's not in the scriptures. They don't actually care about you becoming a good Christian. They only care about their bottom line. And you may wonder, as I have, how they could continue doing this in good conscience. How could they continue taking advantage, often of the poor, and the simple, and the uneducated? How could they take advantage of them to become rich at their expense? Well, verse 2 also tells us. It was because their consciences are seared. Their consciences are seared. We, we know what it means to sear something, right? It's, it's, it's to burn it so that it doesn't feel anything anymore. We know what the conscience is, right? We, we, the conscience is the human faculty that God has given us that warns us when we're about to do something wrong and weighs heavily upon us when we go on and do it anyways. Well, these people had a seared conscience. It was as if a hot iron had pressed down on their conscience and rendered it useless. Paul may have been using medical imagery here when a physician would, would treat a wound by cauterizing it or searing it to deaden the pain. Well, these people had a seared conscience. Their conscience didn't work anymore. They no longer felt any warning or weight of guilt when they did wrong. And that is because they had stopped listening to their consciences long ago. You know, the conscience, you could say, is like the check engine symbol on our cars. You know, the first few times it comes up, you really notice it. And you're like, I got to do something about that. But then over time, as you procrastinate, you see that check engine sign. You're just like, you know, I'm forgetting about it. And you stop listening to it. And it no longer has an effect, any effect on you. That's what happens when we ignore our consciences. It becomes an empty, useless ability. Now, there's another layer to understanding where legalism comes from. Uh, Paul says that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul's saying to us that legalism has demonic origins. I mean, there's no other way to interpret that. Yet, yes, it comes to us through human beings but only after the idea was planted in their minds by the devil. Now, we don't want to over-spiritualize this and say, oh, these people were possessed, and what they really needed was exorcism. No, that's not what Paul is saying. 
But we don't want to under-spiritualize it either by saying that Satan has nothing to do with it. This is all human error. This has demonic origins. And this, in fact, is precisely how Satan works. Right? He, we're coming off Halloween when people depict evil as, as monsters who, who scare you and terrify you by grand displays of their power. And I think that that is a deceptive depiction of the true nature of the evil one because he doesn't usually work like that. He's called the deceiver. He's called the father of lies. He didn't appear to Adam and Eve in the full dark glory of his fallen majesty. He appeared as a snake, as a cunning serpent, whispering in their ears. Because he knows that he can accomplish far more by deceiving us than he could by destroying us. Martin Luther said, what Satan is unable to crush by force, he seeks to suppress by cunning and lies. If he destroys the believer, we go to heaven where we will glorify God forever. But if he deceives us, he sends us straight to hell. There is no greater lie that he wants us to believe than the lie of legalism. He wants us to believe that we can earn our own way back to God. We can, in fact, justify ourselves. He wants us to believe that we can and appropriately exalt ourselves above other people because we have proven that we are better than them. He wants to plant these lies in our minds because if we fall into them, we'll have rejected Christ, rejected the gospel, and rejected God's salvation. Legalism has demonic origins Satan knows what's at stake. He knows that if we can buy the lie of legalism, then we are well on our way to apostasy. So third point, how do we avoid the pitfalls of legalism? What is the remedy? What has God provided for us to free us from this demonic teaching? Well, we might think that the remedy to legalism is to reject the law completely. Okay, it's to say, well, the law is only a source of potential false teaching and temptation, so we're going to reject it. And we're going to live freely. We're just going to do what we want. This is the blessing of the new covenant. We can just let go and let God. We can sit back and relax because we have our free ticket to heaven. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter that Jesus calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. You're free to live however you want. But that would be to get into an equally dangerous counterfeit godliness that we don't have time to get into, but it's called antinomianism, anti-law. It's, a, it's an equal peril to our souls to overemphasize the law and to completely reject the law. And both are counterfeit godliness that we need to look out for. So that's not the remedy. We, we are not to reject the law completely. So what is the remedy? Well, Paul tells us in verses three to four that the remedy is found in how we see God. It's rooted in the right doctrine of God. Do you see how Paul corrects this legalistic thinking by focusing on God's goodness? These false teachers are saying, you can't marry, you can't eat this food, but God created it to be received with thanksgiving. Everything created by God is good. 
Paul is teaching us here that legalism doesn't ultimately come from a wrong view of the law. No, legalism comes from a wrong view of God. Legalism sees God as restrictive and stingy, as the God who holds back. Really, it's the lie that Satan spread to Adam and Eve in the garden. God is holding back. He's not good. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. Listen to me, and you will have a much happier life. But God is not restrictive and stingy. He is generous. He is not closed-fisted. He is open-handed and even extravagant in his blessings. Just listen to the language that Paul uses. Everything, he says, everything created by God is good. It has echoes of Genesis 1. As God is creating, he's declaring that it's good. And that included food, it included marriage, it included everything that God created. It was all created good because it was created by a good God. And we are to receive it as good gifts from his generous hand. It's at this point that we get to what I believe is the most important part of our text today. Now notice that Paul doesn't just say, okay, it's good, so go and do it. Okay, you, you're, you have the green light to go get married and go eat whatever you want. You know, this isn't just a matter of what we can and cannot do. That would be another form of legalistic living. It is, in fact, a matter of radically changing the quality of our lives. Okay, so twice, you see, he points out that God's good gifts are to be received with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. God's gifts His goodness expressed to us in the good things in creation are meant to cultivate in our hearts a gratitude that overflows with thanksgiving. Gratitude for the abundant blessings that we have in life. Gratitude for the good things that God has given to us to enjoy. Gratitude that our God is a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children. Living like this will not just open up doors for you to do what you want to do, it will radically change your life. Because you will begin to see everything around you as signs of God's goodness, as reflections of God's glory, as opportunities for thanksgiving. Now, John Calvin is known as, I think sadly so, as a stodgy theologian. You know, he gave us tulip, and who likes tulip? But I love Tulip, by the way. But John Calvin, he he actually, no one wrote more powerfully and beautifully about the glory of God in creation and his desire for us to enjoy it than, than Calvin. He described the whole world as the theater of God's glory for us to watch and behold the perfection of his character. He writes this, I love this quotation, there is not one little blade of grass There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. Well, how can we live like that? How how can we live with eyes wide open at the goodness and glory of God around us? Well, the answer is in verse three. It says that this life of receiving all of God's gifts with thanksgiving is possible only for those who believe and know the truth. A life of thanksgiving is only possible for those who have been set free by the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ died 
for sinners, the truth that Christ has paid the price for our sins, the truth that he took our place, bearing God's wrath upon himself so that we could go free. That is the truth that frees us from legalistic thinking, from the legalistic teachings of demons. That is the truth that heals our seared consciences. That is the truth that frees us from the burden of the law. It makes it possible to receive all things with thanksgiving. My friends, this is the life that Jesus died to give us. He died to give us a life that is overflowing with thanksgiving. A life where we can care, that, that, that we can rejoice in every blade of grass and every distinct color in the world as expressions of God's good gifts to his people. The gospel is the remedy to legalism. Because only the gospel has the power to convince us that God is truly good. The gospel reminds us that God is not just willing to give us scraps. He doesn't just give us things. He gave us his very own son. And so we can trust him as good and trustworthy. And when the gospel takes hold of your life, it will indeed produce the fruit of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the defining mark, the, the, the main distinction between the true believer and the legalist. You're going to meet a lot of judgmental legalists, self-righteous legalists, zealous legalists, but you will never meet a thankful legalist. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. Because the legalist doesn't believe and know the truth about Christ. But if you do know Christ, if you've been freed from the burden of the law because the law has been fulfilled in him, you will begin to see that every blade of grass, every color in the world was given to make us rejoice. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on 1 Timothy writes, gratitude is essential to sound theology. Thanksgiving is so important to daily Christian life that anyone who rejects God's good gifts runs the risk of abandoning the faith. Now our text today ends in verse five with this beautiful picture of simple gifts, the, the goodness of table fellowship. When he writes that the food that we receive is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is likely a reference to the common practice at the time that has continued throughout the centuries of praying before meals and opening up the scriptures around the dinner table. And when we begin meals like this, when we begin by acknowledging God's goodness and opening up God's word to us that he may speak his goodness into our souls, the food before us is made holy. And that doesn't mean that something magical happens to it. It's not transubstantiated in some way. It simply means that the food is set apart for God's use. It is holy food because it is enjoyed in the presence of a holy God. This can be true of our meals, and in fact, it can be true of every moment of every day. Every moment can be set apart as holy. Set apart for the glory of God and for the joy of men and women if we would but recognize them as God's good gifts and receive them with thanksgiving. Some of you may know the British philosopher and writer, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote insightfully on the Christian faith, he wrote this. He said, you, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera, 
Grace before the concert and pantomime. Grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. Grace before I dip the pen in the ink. What a beautiful picture of a life that is characterized by thanksgiving. A holy life set apart by a holy God for the joy of his people. This is the life of the Christian. It is a life free from legalism and overflowing with thanksgiving. Isn't isn't this the kind of person you want to become? Whether you are a follower of Christ or you're not sure where you stand spiritually, don't you want to become a thankful person? I've never met a person who didn't want to become more thankful because our instinct is to look past the good gifts that we have in our lives and to focus on only the things that bother us. Well, God wants us to be thankful people. And the only way we can be thankful people is to know the heart of God, that God is good, and he has proven his goodness in the sacrifice of his son. The more we see God's goodness reflected in our crucified Savior, the more we will be awakened to the goodness that is all around us, the goodness of marriage, and the goodness of singleness, the goodness of a good meal, the goodness of a good friend, the goodness of a good song, the goodness of a good conversation, the goodness of a good, simple day. That's what true godliness looks like. Counterfeit godliness is full of frowns and complaints and self-righteous denials. True godliness is full of thanksgiving and joy and self-forgetting sacrifice. That's the kind of life that God made us for. That's the kind of life that God invites us to enjoy, to receive from his kind and generous hands and to recognize that he is indeed good. May thanksgiving fill our hearts. May it fill our hearts and our mouths and our speech in thankful words to God and to those around us. And may this be the mark of true godliness in our lives, in our families, and in our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the innumerable blessings in our lives. Thank you for the gift of breath and life and health. Thank you for the gift of families. Thank you for the gift of rain for the trees and the grass. Thank you for the colors in the world. Thank you for making food taste good. Thank you for good friends. And thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray, Father, for this grace of gratitude, this overflowing thanksgiving to characterize our lives, that we may enjoy them for your sake, glorifying you not by forced, willful offerings and sacrifices, but through the enjoyment of your goodness. May you do this, Father, for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.